Hey, what's up everybody and welcome back to That Triathlon Show, the podcast presented by scientifictriathlon.com. I'm your host Michael and this episode is Q&A number 103. Before we get into today's questions, big thanks to our sponsors. First we have Precision Hydration that you can find on precisionhydration.com. They make electrolyte products that uh, you can match to how you sweat and specifically to how much sodium you lose in your sweat because that can vary by a large amount. Somebody on the lower end of the spectrum can might lose less than 500 milligrams of sodium per liter of sweat, whereas somebody on the higher end can lose more than 2,000 milligrams per liter of sweat. And uh, when you combine that with the fact that we might have different sweat rates, so anywhere from from 750 mils per hour or 500 mils per hour, depending on weather conditions, to somebody else having more than two liters per hour or even up to three liters per hour, then you can see that uh, it quickly starts to matter how much electrolytes you replenish because it's not going to be the same for everybody. You can figure out your benchmark by going to precisionhydration.com and taking their free online sweat test, which takes just a few minutes. And then you can get 15% off your electrolyte products with the promo code DEATTRIATHLONSHOW15. And thank you to Roka that you can find on roka.com. Roka are the world-leading manufacturers of wetsuits, trisuits, swimskins, goggles, high-performance eyewear, and prescription glasses and sunglasses, and they are trusted by some of the greatest of the great triathletes in the world, including athletes like uh, Javier Gomez, Mario Mola, Lucy Charles Barclay, Katie Safiris, and so on and so forth. There's no shortage of uh, great athletes, world championship medals, Olympic medals, etc. in the Roka roster. Whatever products you're interested in, you can get a very nice 20% discount with the promo code that you can get on roka.com forward slash TTS. Now on to today's questions. The first one is from Mickey in the United Arab Emirates who writes, Hi Michael, a bit late proposing this question so long after lockdown, but like many others, I started cycling indoors this year for the first time ever and have no clarity on how to modify power targets for indoor training. The first thing I noticed was how much more difficult higher RPE or rating of perceived exertion uh, it was compared to cycling uh, outdoors due to the constant force production required and with no freewheeling, micro, ba- micro brakes and so on. With time, this effect has reduced over the six months I have been training at home indoors, and I can feel that the benefits have translated to outdoor cycling. However, in order to train accurately, I have researched the difference between indoor and outdoor cycling power to ensure I am hitting the correct intensities for each session. Some things I've found suggest a difference of 10-15% to in watts between indoor and outdoor power. And some claim that the RPE uh, difference will be completely eliminated with enough time and adaptation. I know that you normally apply a 10% target range to your power targets in your training plans. And as such, I normally target the lower range limit on the trainer, which should ensure I am in the correct zone. However, it would be useful to be able to apply some further fitness to increase the accuracy of the quantity of intensity minutes I am collecting, which I track carefully. All right, uh, thanks so much, Mickey, for the question. And uh, basically, to sum up, we were looking to to establish as if there is a specific difference between power between indoor and outdoor cycling. 
the short and sweet answer is that I tend to suggest that 10% is a common difference. Uh, so that means that outdoors you are likely to be able to produce 10% more power than indoors for the same uh, perceived effort. And uh, even your your top peak powers for whatever duration, let's say you do a 20-minute test, it might be 10% higher outdoors than indoors. But uh, this is for somebody who finds the indoor trainer pretty hard to train on compared to outdoors. So somebody like you, at least at the start of your starting to train indoors. On the other hand, somebody who is very experienced with indoor training can expect something more in the range of a 0 to 5% difference. Uh, so a 0 to 5% decrease in power indoors compared to outdoors. So I would say that uh, what you're doing of staying at the lower end of the target range in my training plans is uh, th- that puts you right in the range, as you say. It's uh, it's a good good starting point for sure. And uh, just one thing to clarify around that target range. So uh, you said in your question, actually, I modified the question a little bit because you said plus minus 10%, but uh, it's actually plus minus 5% more commonly so let's say you you're doing some sort of high intensity intervals where the middle part of the range is 115 percent then the range would be 110 to 120 percent usually Uh, but uh, this range one other thing that i should clarify is that this range is not always 10 percent wide it really depends on the workout that you're doing Uh, but uh, 10 percent is usually it's pretty close to 10 percent sometimes it might be slightly bigger sometimes it might be slightly smaller Uh, usually not much smaller than that though so uh, anyway that's just a little bit of a clarification but it could be that you have a workout where where it's slightly smaller or bigger than that 10 percent range Uh, and what you're doing then is that you're aiming for if you take an example here let's say you're doing a workout where the target range is 80 to 90 percent of ftp then what you're doing mickey is that you're shooting for that lower end so 80 percent of ftp as your target on the indoor trainer the assumption we're doing here is well one thing that is clear is that you're using as a starting point your ftp that is probably tested outdoors uh, from what i can understand at least and uh, and then the assumption is that outdoors if doing the same workout you would be able to hit the upper end of that workout range because then let's say if it's possible for you to hit 90 percent in that workout then 80 percent as a target when you're training indoors should be a pretty safe bet because that puts you in that minus 10 percent range indoors compared to outdoors so so that's it it can work but but it's uh, one thing that uh, that i should say here is that if hypothetically you would still struggle indoors despite staying at that low end of the range it wouldn't be entirely surprising because if we again we continue this example and let's say that your ftp outdoors that you've tested is 250 watts then the 80 to 90 percent target of 250 watts would mean that you should do that those intervals between 200 to 225 watts and 85 percent right in the middle of that range would be 213 watts rounding up but if on the day 85 percent or 213 watts would be your ideal target doing this workout outdoors and anything above that would be too much maybe because you're in the middle of a demanding training block or maybe you 
haven't slept or eaten as well as you usually do uh, it's quite possible that the upper end of the range on a given day might not be feasible but the midpoint of the range is or even outdoors maybe the low end of the range is some days what is the most realistic for you so so anyway if on this given day we assume that outdoors you would be able to hit 213 watts so the mid end of the range but the upper end will be a bit too much because of the training load or something then if we apply the 10% estimate and we assume that you are actually losing 10% power when training indoors compared to outdoors, then that ideal 213 watt target or 85% target corresponds to 192 watts indoors. And again, keep in mind that the range that you had there for the workout was 200 to 225. So, but, but in reality, with these calculations and some assumptions, it might turn out that that's almost... 10 watts too high despite being despite you trying to go at the lower end so so just keep in mind that if the target range is 10 percentage units wide then targeting the low end of that range uh, assumes that outdoors on that day you would be able to hit the very top end of the range and this is sometimes maybe often the case but it's not always the case so you also need to give yourself the flexibility of going below the target range maybe by simply recalculating an or calculating an indoor ftp estimate for yourself and that could be 90 percent of your outdoor ftp or it could be 92 percent uh if and this these 10 and 8 percent decrements of course assume that uh, yeah you still struggle a bit with riding indoors compared to outdoors which again is normal it will take time to get to closer to that five percent or zero percent range but anyway that might be the way to go rather than simply targeting the range that is based on your outdoor ftp and uh, if we take this a little further and we dig a little bit into what we know from uh, from research then 10 percent is a rule that comes primarily from anecdotal evidence i should say but there was an interesting paper that i linked to in the show notes called growth efficiency and cycling economy are higher in the field as compared with on an axiom stationary ergometer and in their conclusions they write that with the same vo2 consumption used in the laboratory the cyclists could generate a higher power output close to 10 percent in the field compared with the axiom stationary ergometer conditions they did also say that there is conflicting evidence around this from previous studies and uh, at high intensities intensities above critical power or ftp for our intents and purposes power output may not be significantly different between indoor and outdoor conditions because in their study they tested economy and efficiency which is a sub-maximal test so they tested this below critical power uh, but uh, yeah anyway this is one study that uh, that found that 10 percent uh, difference to potentially be uh, be something that that could actually be backed up by evidence but uh, Another example of, well, an example of the conflicting evidence we're talking about is a study called Reliability of Mean Power Recorded During Indoor and Outdoor Self-Paced 40-Kilometer Cycling Time Trials. Uh, this study found no differences between indoor and outdoor power on average. So the subjects, there were eight subjects in this study, they did three 40-kilometer time trials indoors and three of them outdoors. So this was great because they got reliable results by averaging across several trials for each subject in each condition. Uh, 
but uh, yeah, there, so there is a fair amount of individual variance in uh, in the data, which you can see if you go to the in the link through the link in the episode description that I'll give you to the paper. Table three will show you the power for each subject for each time trial. So all the data is there. And for example, we see from that table that there are four subjects that are kind of in the their indoor power is 91 to 94 percent of their outdoor power on average but you also have one subject who averaged the exact same power indoors as outdoors and one subject that actually managed five percent higher power indoors compared to outdoors so again the individual variance is big and uh, i think that's my conclusion here it's possible to reach the same or pretty much the same performance level indoors as outdoors but it requires you getting used to it over a period of time and uh, I do think that there is a trend as well based on some other studies I saw that for more experienced or more well-trained athletes, the difference seems to be smaller. Uh, for example, I saw one study that was in very, very kind of recreational athletes or kind of almost like a sedentary population, not really athletes per se. And in in that study, the difference was massive, but probably training level uh, plays a role here in how much difference you you will experience. But another thing that plays a role is equipment. So the first thing that you need to really, really get on top of when it comes to indoor training is heat and, and ventilation, or I should say lack of heat, because ideally you want your room to be as cool as possible. So I think that you probably have air conditioning there in the United Arab Emirates, which is great, of course, but you still need some a couple of really good fans is almost like mandatory for anybody training indoors. You have two fans that are that are really good because otherwise you will overheat so much and you will your performance will be reduced indoors because of the lack the, the lack of of cooling and heat thermal regulation. So so heat and ventilation super important, but there might also be smaller differences based on the type of trainer that you use. So, for example, uh, if you're using a wheel-on trainer versus a direct drive trainer, uh, so for listeners that don't know the, ter- uh, the uh, terminology here, uh, direct drive trainers, you don't keep the, the rear wheel on, but you actually just uh, you you put your bike on the on the cassette that is attached to the trainer flywheel essentially so so and that's what most high-end smart trainers use this sort of system but the wheel on is where you keep your wheels both your wheels on your bike and then you press a roll a resistance roll against your rear wheel rear tire and uh, that's what creates the resistance there and the difference here is that a direct drive trainer will have a slightly more realistic inertia profile or resistance profile across the pedal stroke uh, which might lead it to perceptually feel a bit easier it feels more like riding outdoors so especially as you get started with indoor training this can be an advantage to actually have a direct dry trainer the disadvantage is that these are the more expensive uh, trainers typically and uh, but even within the segment of direct drive trainers you might have small differences like if you are have a trainer that uses a very heavy flywheel then this will be pretty good pretty realistic at simulating outdoor riding Uh, and this might again help reducing rpe a bit of your workout but these trainers tend to be the the most expensive ones though and uh, the ones with uh, slightly less heavy flywheels 
uh, might more on the moderate pricing side of things they they still have a good sort of road feel and decent inertia and resistance profile but uh, but they have less of an they keep less of the of the inertia than the ones with a really heavy flywheel so so there are some differences there in terms of which trainer you choose as well but uh, finally to get back to your question if you want the most accurate power targets for indoor training uh, i would say do a new ftp test uh, or some sort of test equivalently indoors and set your targets based based specifically on that indoor environment and if you don't want to do that then just the estimates that you should do is you should expect that you may lose as much as 10 percent power indoors versus outdoors but there is no one formula you can apply to get any more accuracy or finesse into this into how to change your power targets other than just simply estimating that if your ftp outdoors is for example 250 watts then if you assume that it's five to ten percent lower indoors then your ftp indoors is probably between 225 to 238 watts in this example and you can then use these numbers and probably the lower number makes more sense to make sure you can complete your workouts to adjust adjust your workout power targets based on your estimated indoor ftp and then of, of course use rpe within the workout and use heart rate within the workout itself as well so that's it hope this helps and uh, thanks again for your question mickey the next question is from hussein who writes hi michael i came across your uh, article or your episode about foods about supplements for triathletes i am 39 years old and i train two or three times per week mostly running Uh, i mostly do aerobic exercises but i would also like to gain some muscle mass i do not take any supplements but i think i need to do so Uh, i decided to do a search on the internet but realized there are too many different opinions about whether to take or supplements or not and if to be taken which supplements are best for me i try to eat healthy food and avoid junk food as much as possible i am diagnosed with anemia uh, which means iron deficiency but it's at a moderate level i would be happy if you could uh, be of any help to me all right thank you hussein for the question so as as you found out there is an episode that digs deep into the details uh, but i'm more than happy to give a summary and some main takeaways for you and others in a similar situation but i will link to the main episode which is episode 193 called evidence-based supplements for triathletes and endurance athletes and in that episode i refer to and link to the ioc the international olympic committee's uh, consensus statement from 2018 which was produced by a number of the best researchers in the field in sports nutrition and uh, that consensus statement uh, basically has the state of the art science around supplements which one which ones do you have evidence for them and which ones do not and uh, i'll link to that as well so based on that article we can categorize supplements in four different groups when for athletes i should say there are supplements used to prevent or treat nutrient deficiencies there are supplements used to provide a practical form of energy and nutrients there are supplements that directly improve sports performance and supplements that indirectly improve sports performance so supplements uh, so if we start with actually supplements used to provide a practical form of energy and nutrients uh, they include things like sports drinks and gels and uh, protein powders probably 
and uh, these are of course very useful for athletes that train that do longer workouts or more intense workouts to take on sports drinks and gels to make sure that you can maintain your performance level for you when you're training three times per week maybe not very relevant because you probably don't train super long uh, so i don't think that you really need any any sports drinks or gels for for any of those sessions and uh, so yeah I, I would say that this is this is a very useful group of supplements for people that train more that have some long sessions and some really intense sessions but uh, for people that train at the level that you're training uh, probably not so much a good ballpark number is that if the workout is 90 minutes or longer then you, uh, you it you would benefit from taking on energy in this form but if it's shorter then you can then you don't need to do that so i'll leave it at that well a protein i should say again if you're training three times per week you don't need to supplement with protein and uh, even for many endurance athletes i don't think that we need to supplement like it's pretty easy to to get protein from food uh, so so for the most part we don't need to supplement that much with protein and i think that as we'll talk about perhaps in uh in next week's or in two weeks time on uh, on an interview i do with dr bob murray it's probably a lot more difficult to actually get carbohydrates than to get protein so so i think that protein is useful to have as a convenient supplement for endurance athletes to train a lot but it's not something that should be relied upon as a main source of protein that should be uh, whole food sources of protein uh, so uh, so yeah that i started with that number two i'm approaching this list in a little bit of a different order but let me actually go to number three next which is supplements that directly improve sports performance so in other words the idea here is that you take a supplement sometime before a workout or a race sometimes even as part of a multi-day loading protocol and you get a benefit in form of improved endurance or strength capacity and performance in this category of supplements, we have three supplements that have positive evidence. And these are caffeine and nitrate for endurance performance and creatine for strength performance. In your particular case, it sounds like you're not racing, you're more training to stay fit and healthy. So uh, unless I'm mistaken, that's, if that is the case, then none of these supplements are relevant for you at all. But I'll give a brief overview for other listeners uh, of the benefits of these supplements uh, because uh, they are good for can be good for racing assuming that you have practiced with them in training beforehand so caffeine can on average give you a two to three percent improvement in endurance performance and the typical protocol would be to take three to six milligrams per kilogram body weight an hour or so before the race or the performance for much more information go and listen to episode 234 which is caffeine and endurance performance with uh, ajmol ali phd nitrate can also give a small performance boost on the order of one to three percent recent evidence seems to suggest that it may be most beneficial if you buffer nitrate so you do a multi-day loading protocol taking it twice per day for a week leading up to a race for more information on nitrate listen to episode 187 nitrate loading marathons and endurance sports science with professor andy jones and it is important to point out at this point that the effects of supplements are probably not additive. So let's say that you would get a boost from caffeine by 2.5% and a 1.5% boost by nitrate. 
that does not mean that you would get a 4% improvement by using both caffeine and nitrate. Personally, I still do use both caffeine and nitrate before important races, but I don't expect a 4% improvement by any means. I just pray for a combined improvement of maybe in that 2 to 3% uh, range, realistically speaking. Creatine is uh, absolutely beneficial for strength and power athletes. Uh, so if you are interested in improving muscle strength or size, then it can be very useful, but it requires that you actually strength train. So I don't know, you don't have that in your question at the moment. Uh, if that is something that you're going to get more serious about, then check out creatine. But for endurance athletes, uh, it's not really relevant at all, like not even for endurance athletes to do strength training because we uh, that, that's not really the kind of adaptations that we're after. So uh, that's uh, that's basically it. For endurance athletes, you have caffeine and nitrate that, that directly improve race performance and they have good evidence, so are worth using if you're looking for performance uh, maximum performance in races. But let's continue to the next category, supplements used to prevent or treat nutrient deficiencies. And the three supplements that may be important here, and I say maybe, it doesn't mean that you should take all of them or should take any one of them, but uh, they are vitamin D, iron, and calcium. So vitamin D is a really important one, uh, the most important one for uh, on, on average, for sure. A deficiency in vitamin D can lead to general fatigue and greater susceptibility to illness. And in today's society, with most of us having indoor desk jobs and not spending that much time out in the sun, it is a supplement that really most people in Western countries could benefit from taking as uh, vitamin D is uh, a, a vitamin that we get from direct skin exposure to, to sunlight for extended durations. So naturally, where you live has a big impact on how likely you are to be deficient and just how deficient you are with, for example, people in Scandinavia, I think pretty much everyone should take it there. But we do know that even in climates that are known to be sunny and sun exposed, like in the Mediterranean area, it is still very easy and very common to be uh, deficient in vitamin D. So I would say this is the one single supplement that most people listening probably should be taking. Uh, of course, testing to confirm whether you have a deficiency is the best approach, but but it's one that uh, that a lot of athletes will benefit from taking. And uh, more about vitamin D, uh, can you can actually listen to in the episode that we had uh, one week or two weeks ago with the doctors Joel McKay and uh, Kush Joshi. Uh, we talked quite a lot about that and how vitamin D can even be important for uh, preventing stress fractures. Now, iron uh, iron has the crucial function of helping transport oxygen to the working muscles as part of the hemoglobin molecule. So an iron deficiency can lead to decreased oxygen supply to working muscles and therefore to greatly reduce performance. This iron supplementation is important if and only if you are actually deficient which in your case you are, you have a moderate anemia. Uh, but it is important for endurance athletes to not just take iron supplements uh, because it can be toxic if you have too much of it, but actually get tested and get tested for serum iron and for ferritin. And if you are low, talk to a medical professional about how to supplement. Uh, this is not a DIY uh, supplement. This is something that you need. You, need, you should have medical help uh, for. So that's basically it for you, Hussein. It means talk to your doctor, get information around how you should supplement for your anemia, 
and uh, also get tested fairly regularly again consult with your doctor for this to to see how often it makes sense for you to to test oh and by the way something i should add that i didn't mention is that some symptoms of anemia uh, other than decreased performance endurance performance is feeling very fatigued tired and and flat that those would be uh, basically some of the main things that would lead you to go and and get a test to see if you're deficient but it could also be a vitamin d deficiency or another deficiency so so it's not just iron that you'd be testing but again uh, more on that in the episode episode 249 with drs mckay and joshi now lastly calcium calcium is an important component for bone health and for muscle and nerve cell function uh, it's one of those things worth checking in a blood panel on a regular basis but generally speaking if you consume a normal amount of dairy products then you're unlikely to be deficient uh, so uh, but for people that uh, limit their dairy intake uh, then uh, that can be something that you should be checking regularly and also cal- lack of calcium or calcium deficiency has been linked to general energy restriction so if you're on uh, a diet if you're if you're on a caloric deficit you're trying to lose weight then that's uh, probably then it's probably worth uh, tracking your calcium to see see how how you're doing on that front uh, but uh, if you have a verified calcium deficiency then uh, yes supplementing makes sense if not then it doesn't really the final group of supplements as per the ioc consensus statement are the supplements that improve performance indirectly so this is a varied group of supplements that uh, claim to enhance performance indirectly by supporting athletes health body composition and ability to train hard and recover quickly ability to adapt better and tolerate pain better and so on and so forth so there is of course a vast group of supplement candidates in this category and there are only very few that have strong evidence going for them so vitamin d is included in this group as well because it's associated with uh, reducing the risk of upper respiratory tract infections and also with reducing the risk of stress fractures as mentioned so vitamin d definitely on the list for things worth taking then we have probiotics is the other one and they have also been associated with a reduced risk of upper respiratory tract infections as well as gastrointestinal infections. The evidence for efficacy of probiotics is moderate, which is okay. Uh, so yeah, it's fully understandable that some people, especially those working a lot around other people under normal circumstances, not work at home circumstances, might want to take probiotics to as an extra uh, insurance measure from getting sick getting an infection uh, but for me for example working at home even in in any <laughs> in any circumstances and not being that much around people uh, i personally don't do not consider probiotics the evidence of probiotics compelling enough for me to take them so in summary what supplements should you be taking uh, so uh, vitamin d uh, for you uh, i think because i think for almost anybody vitamin d is important and if you have an indoor job then then you're probably not getting enough sun exposure uh, that that you're getting all the vitamin d that you need uh, it can be tested that would be better of course than assuming that you need it but but vitamin d is a good one to take and iron uh, based on your doctor's prescription with your diagnosed anemia uh, is something that you should take as well but do not supplement iron without that consulting consultation with your doctor and uh, i would say that once or twice per year 
get a blood panel and check for check your iron levels of course but also check vitamin d and calcium and based on that you may need to change your dose of vitamin d and iron and if you identify a calcium deficiency then that's worth supplementing as well there are some things that i have left out on this list because they are medications rather than supplements so such as thyroid medication for example uh, so we talked about that again in episode 249 uh, but uh, so but the reason for this is that while supplements shouldn't be taken lightly for example iron is a perfect example of that it's still something completely different from medication because medication is given in response to a specific medical condition supplements may or may not be but most often they are not a medical condition although anemia is a medical condition but uh, yeah a deficiency just a deficiency is not the same as a medical condition uh, so but they can lead to medical conditions and that is the difference so that's kind of that's the reason for not including medications on this list but actually only things that are supplements so i'll finish off by giving you my list of supplements that that i take so first in the category of to provide energy and nutrients so during workouts i use gels uh, mostly sometimes sports drinks i use electrolytes uh, as well precision hydration of course and i do use some whey protein but uh, try not to rely too heavily on it and uh, try to make sure that i get uh, plenty of protein from whole foods as well including both plant-based food and uh, some fish and some meat uh, and for direct performance improvement in races i as i said use both caffeine and nitrate for the really important races nitrate is something that i preload with for five or six days before the race uh, 400 milligrams twice per day i believe is the dose and caffeine i try to take three to four uh, milligrams uh, per kilogram body weight an hour before the race and uh, in terms of other supplements only vitamin d so uh, that's it and, and in terms of a diet i eat everything don't restrict macronutrients or food groups and i do take get a blood panel test every now and then to check make sure that i don't have any deficiencies and uh, it seems that uh, i don't I'm very stable in those other levels so uh, so yeah seems that this is working for me but of course everybody needs to find what's working working for them because different climates uh, different diets and so on will impact what you need to take and what you don't need to take all right thank you for your question hussein i hope this helps and that's it for today keep sending in questions to michael at scientifictriathlon.com and that's michael with a k you can find this q a and all previous q a's on scientifictriathlon.com uh, please subscribe to the podcast in your podcast app so you don't miss future episodes and tune in on monday to hear an interview with cycling coach James Sprague on all things cycling training, uh, highly relevant for both triathletes and cycling. If you're interested in training plans or coaching to take your triathlon per performance to the next level, go and check out scientifictriathlon.com and the information we have there. It could very well be the best investment you can make in your own improved performance. Thank you to our sponsors, Precision Hydration, that you can find on precisionhydration.com. Go and take their free online sweat test to get a personalized hydration strategy and get 15% off your electrolytes with the promo code thattriathlonshow15. And thank you to Roka that you can find on roka.com. Go and check out their wetsuits, dry suits, swim skins, goggles, and high-performance eyewear and prescription glasses and sunglasses and get 20% off your order with the promo code that you can get on roka.com forward slash TTS. Thank you, as always, for listening 
keep training smart and keep loving triathlon.